And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Dr. Cornelis Venema, professor and president of Mid-America Reformed Seminary and a URC minister. Uh, Dr. Venema, it's an honor to have you on with us today. I'm very glad to uh, have the opportunity myself. You know, uh, today we want to take a a look at the topic of the Christian life and how it intersects with all the world around us and our callings. And I'm wondering if you can better help us understand, um, for example, the teaching of Jesus that he's Lord over all. We know that our life in Christ is spiritual, and yet some folks may be inclined to think that um, our spiritual lives are kind of to be kept pristine for God, yet while we're in the world, we're not to expect too much intersection between the two. Uh, in other words, some some might think that the Christian has a religious life in the church, a secular life outside it. Uh, can you help us think through this a little bit today? Well, I think it's very important that we have a, a comprehensive view, a holistic view of Christ's work of redemption by His Spirit and Word. Uh, I would take as a great manifesto for the Christian life our Lord's teaching in His Sermon on the Mount. I believe Sinclair Ferguson describes it comprehensively as a description of kingdom life in a fallen world. We're called, on the one hand, though in the world, not to be of the world, but we are called to be a light that cannot be hidden. We're called to be a leaven, to be a salting salt. And it's very striking to me that our Lord begins the sermon describing kingdom life in a fallen world by saying that he did not come to abolish, but rather to fulfill the law. And I take that to mean to fulfill it on our behalf in order to save us by doing what the law requires and suffering the curse and condemnation of the law in our place, but as well by his Spirit renewing our hearts in obedience as we enjoy fellowship with him. And the law, as you know, is a law that claims our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we should give those over to the Lord, and that we should love those who bear his image, our neighbors, even as we love ourselves. And that great love commandment, which is enlivened by the Spirit and written upon our hearts, certainly uh, leaves no part of life untouched by its claim. Mm. You know, my wife and I do a little program called The Covenant Home each weeknight, and we read from good Christian books um, that, that are concerning the raising of our children and conduct of our home life. Seems like um, this plays right into um, Christ being Lord over the home and the raising of children and, and, and that sort of thing. Well, that's certainly true. And I think most Christians, on the issue of what difference does it make that you belong to Christ, that you've been redeemed and saved by Him, by the working of His Spirit through the Word, would recognize that there is such a thing as a distinctively Christian understanding of marriage, the relationship between husband and wife. And as Paul outlines that in Ephesians 6 and in other passages, parents have special responsibilities to nurture their children, to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. What I would also argue is that in the same way, in many different areas of our lives, in different kinds of relationships, let's just say in the workplace or in the school, 
to which we send our children or when we enter the public square, uh, we're called to bear testimony to the truth which is in Christ, to bring our every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, to be discerning and think about what our circumstance as Christian believers and what we've been given to know about God's will in His Word, the Scriptures, how does that speak to all of life? What difference does it make? How can my life, my speech and conduct count for the kingdom which I'm to seek? Seek first God's kingdom and its righteousness. Uh, We need to, to think together about that, but we may not carve out certain areas of our life and say, well, God has no claim upon this part of my life. His word doesn't speak to this uh, challenge that I'm facing. We need to walk in the light of God's word and seek the wisdom that his word grants us to obey the Lord and to live in a way that's pleasing to him in whatever our particular calling or circumstance. Yeah. So for the, let's say a, we have a son that's that's in um, HVAC, you know, doing heating and that sort of thing. So as he goes to the workplace, he um, will have a very real sense that he's serving Christ. And whereas um, maybe someone else who is called to the Christian ministry, he also is, is serving Christ in, in that area, right? Oh, Absolutely. Uh, I always like to tell the story of a Christian academy I went to many years ago. They sent us, as graduates, alumni, a questionnaire. And one of the first questions out of the box was, are you in full-time Christian ministry or in part-time Christian ministry? <laughs> and I I couldn't help it. I had to write a little note in the margin, and I said, there are different kinds of ministry. Some are more strategic, and I understand what you're saying, uh, a direct ministry of the gospel, let's say as a missionary, an evangelist, uh, a pastor and teacher, those are obviously very clear and strategic ways in which to be serving the Lord Jesus Christ. But I wouldn't want to, for a moment, make peace with the notion that if I'm not called to that kind of ministry, my work and labor, my calling, is not to be done in fellowship with Christ and by the working of His Spirit through His Word, as a member of Christ, as part of my offering. As Paul says, we're to offer our bodies, and that's a way of saying we're to offer ourselves in gratitude for God's mercy, and that's our spiritual service. So I can do that if I'm a plumber, if I'm you know, a farmer, if I'm a teacher, if I'm a a wife and mother, a father and husband. Uh, In all of these areas, I have to be asking, together with other believers, I would put it this way, what difference does it make that I call myself a Christian, and how can that show through and be evident, put flesh on that, in terms of the way I carry out my daily work and calling? Yeah, yeah, and I'm also thinking about that mom out there with a number of kids, um, perhaps even homeschooling, trying to keep the house clean, teach, take phone calls, maybe even (laughs) 
running a small business, and she's balancing so many issues and requests, it's hard to comprehend. And um, um, I think she should be encouraged because her her good works really, really count and are of um, spiritual significance. I agree with that entirely. I I think one of the ways to get at this question is to ask, you know, what counts as a good work? Good works don't save us. We're saved by grace, apart from works. But they flow out of a true and living faith, and they're the fruit of the work of the Spirit in us. And so we will do good works. Uh, Paul even says, God has, as God's handiwork, prepared in advance the, the good works that we'll walk in. And a good work is any act that we uh, perform before God from true faith, and it's performed to His glory. Paul says, it's rather striking to me, that if we're to eat and to drink and do all things to God's glory, surely we have to be uh, attentive to, in this particular area of my life, if this is a legitimate task and calling, what is it in that to give glory to God, to serve others who bear His image, and to do so not in order to be saved by my good works, but to demonstrate the genuineness of my uh, commitment to the Lord and to His people. Yeah. I'm thinking about another area, and that is involving um, civil magistrates and when evil um, starts to prevail in in a society. I'm thinking back during the time of the Nazis and, um, one of the critiques against the Christian church, I think I've heard by, by perhaps non-Christians, is that, well, where was the Christian church in all of this? And um, I, I think that some of the churches, perhaps some of the traditions of the churches, were quiet during that Nazi period, or at least compliant. Um, maybe you can explain what, what should have happened if they followed a more biblical worldview in light of the atrocities that, that were going on? Well, it's, it's a very interesting period in history, but also in the history of the Church, because there was actually, during the Nazi era, an attempt on the part of the National Socialists, the Nazis, to co-opt the Church. It was called the German Christian Movement, and they appealed to the idea that God was revealing his purpose in history and for the German people in this particular moment, with the rise of Hitler and others, as the uh, the moment of the German nation, the beginning of a third millennial kingdom or Reich. And there were many who, unhappily, rather than uh, taking their cue from the authority of Christ speaking uh, by His Spirit with His Word as their point of departure for knowing what they ought to do, they uh, they relied on sort of an, uh, an appeal to what God was revealing at this moment of history. And um, there are many in the in that tradition in the aftermath of World War II who recognize that. In some segments of the Church, there was a kind of quiet, almost passive um, attitude or disposition toward the Christian's responsibility in the public square, and in particular in the political realm. 
And that, I think, is also for us a great temptation to so separate our identity and calling as Christians within the more narrow confines of our life within the Church and in relation to other Christians, and because we've calculated that our voice and testimony may not bear great fruit in the public arena, particularly in a society and culture like ours, that we should fall silent, or we should act and speak in the civil community and in the political realm, in the public square, on some other basis or standard than the one we're given in Scripture. And I don't think we should be calculating that way. It's not a question of, do I anticipate if I testify to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and to the claims of His Word and the requirements of God's holy law in the public square, as it's called today, I'm going to be pushed back and resisted or perhaps even ridiculed, therefore I'm not going to do it. I don't think we should ever be calculating in that respect mm-hmm. in terms of how effective, it's not a question of how effective we may be or not be, that we leave that to God and His grace, and if He should bring a revival or a renewal of righteousness and of greater respect for the teaching of His Word in our day, also in our nation or our society, that may or may not happen. But in our own little place, I think Calvin somewhere in his Institutes describes the Christian life as being like that of a soldier who's placed on duty at a sentry post. And the question at the end of the day is not, did you change the world, but did you remain steadfast in that place where the Lord had put you? And did you remain resolute there and upholding the standards of his word and of calling uh, yourself and others to live in a way that honors the, his uh, standards of righteousness as they're put forth in his word. Yeah. It seems that um, there's many areas where um, the lordship of Christ speaks into even uh, the financial, um, you know, relating to the charging of interest or how employers should treat employees and other social matters. It's kind of a a large area as we consider it. Well, it's interesting to me that even in an epistle, like Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, if you read carefully in context and remember the kind of world into which the gospel and that letter written to that church in Ephesus was spoken the amazing, life-transforming, and comprehensive alteration, you might say, the way people would view life, is given in all of the chapters toward the end of the letter, which have exhortations to a certain pattern of conduct. Something as simple as, um, you ought to work with your hands if opportunity is given so that you can provide for yourself, and as he says, some paraphrasing in chapter 4, help those who are in need. Well, in the society and culture of the first century of the Christian uh, era, that was very significant. Leisure was commended. It was the slave or the servant who had to engage what we would call menial labor and work with his hands. And Paul is picking up, by way of a gospel exhortation, 
an exhortation that is born out of an understanding of what it means to be human, bearing God's image, created for life in this world, with obligations to love God and to love others and to exercise dominion over the creation. The, the very idea that work, meaningful and profitable, fruitful labor in all kinds of different areas within the economy, that that's legitimate life in the presence and before the face of God, and that that would be part of what the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and redemption through Christ would oblige Christians to recognize as they go about their daily tasks that we read that, and we live in a, a country, many of us, that has many inheritances and a long a familiarity with scriptural teaching and the worldview that you find in the Bible. That doesn't come to us as a great surprise, but that's a distinctively Christian and biblical view of human life uh, in the presence of God and in service to others. One of the great themes of the Reformation, we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, both for Luther and for Calvin, was a, a rejection of this idea that there are the religious they're the people who withdraw from life in the world, live in a monastery, uh, engage in religious exercises, and the so-called secular occupations of farming, of mercantilism, of doing business, exchange of goods and production of goods. Their argument, both of them, was that we're set free by God's grace to work not unto our salvation, but out of gratitude to God, and to do so in all of these specific ways. The whole idea of the priesthood of all believers, that we have service to render to God and to others in God's name, in fellowship with Christ, was a hugely important uh, theme at the time of the Reformation, and I think it's one that as Christians and as churches today, we need to in some ways recapture. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was in the in the emergency room the other day. I uh, had a terrible bout with <laughs> diverticulitis and uh while I was there the care was wonderful and I was just um pondering <laughs> as I was in terrible pain, I was pondering uh the fact that really these people are carrying out a Christian work whether they know it or not of ministering to others, and it really struck me. Well, I think that's a significant observation. One of the uh, things we often forget is that, back to your example from uh, the plumbing and heating and cooling industry, some people will say, well, it's not really any, there's nothing particularly Christian or distinctively Christian about that. A plumber is a plumber is a plumber, a nurse is a nurse is a nurse. There's a moment of truth in that. When I'm joined in fellowship with God through the work of Christ and by the inworking of His Spirit, I don't cease to be a human being bearing God's image or a person who's been placed in this world to love God and to love others who bear His image. And it's the same world we share as Christians with those who are non-Christian. And there are many ways in which there are similarities on the technical level. A plumber who's not a Christian can be technically more proficient and skilled even than many Christians. 
that doesn't really go to the heart of the issue, however, because we should strive for excellence even at the technical level. But it makes a world of difference if you understand that your calling is to be, as a Christian, properly human. That is, doing that for which you were created in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Carrying out, albeit in a limited, small way, the calling that God has given to us to, um, as it's put already in the first chapter of the book of Genesis, to take care of the creation that he's placed under human stewardship, to bring all things in dominion, under the, uh, the Lord's dominion, to offer our lives to God as a sacrifice of thanksgiving. When we are redeemed or when we are saved, our lives are radically reoriented, but they're not become non-human. We still marry and are given in marriage. We have families. We have work to do. We have all kinds of tasks and vocations to fulfill. But we do those now out of the awareness that we're being renewed in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. God is fashioning us again after the image of his own Son. He's equipping us by his Spirit and Word to serve him more faithfully, more devotedly, uh, more eagerly than would otherwise be the case. Amen. Amen. In the few minutes remaining, could you tell us a little bit about a Mid-America Reform Seminary? Maybe there's a young man out there who's struggling with the call to the ministry, and um, he wants to learn more. Or else he, he knows that this is what God is having me do. Um, what, what is Mid-America like? Well, let me say, first of all, I'd love to tell you a little bit about that, answer that question. Glad for the opportunity. Uh, Mid-America, our website, everything I don't say can be found on the website. It's just www.midamerica.edu, and you can find a lot of information on there about uh, applying for study at Mid-America, who we are, what we're about, resources that are available, and what's happening at the seminary what is our mission, and the like. If I was to state it about as quickly and uh, briefly as I could, we are a school that is wholeheartedly committed to the inspiration and authority of the Word of God and scripturated in the Old and New Testaments. We're a school in the historic confessional tradition of the Reformation. We hold to uh, four Reformation confessions that summarize what's often called the Reformed faith, we hope to and aim as an institution to tailor our program, which is primarily a three-year program for students who desire, feel the call to enter the gospel ministry. We tailor that program to, on the one hand, be academically excellent and rigorous, but on the other hand, in all of its parts, very much aiming to provide students with the tools and the kind of spiritual formation they need to be the right kind of men to be faithful and fruitful in the ministry. A lot of schools are strictly academies, uh, or they're not very rigorous in their academics, and they mostly give attention to practical matters. We try to strike a, a nice balance. We think we uh, do well bo on both fronts, academically and in terms of spiritual formation. And uh, we view the ministry 
in classic reformational terms as primarily a ministry of pastoring, shepherding God's people, teaching, preaching, communicating in a variety of pastoral areas the uh, the gospel of God's saving grace in Jesus Christ. We're located in the Chicago area, south side, large metropolitan area, relatively small school, but I think that's an advantage. We can uh, pay attention to all of our students and work directly with them and oversee and keep a close eye on their preparation. We think that's a biblical principle, that if someone aspires to the office of bishop or elder in the church, they need certain qualities and characteristics by Christ's Spirit that will furnish them for the work. So um, we don't want to be solely an academy. We want to keep the well-being of the Church and the um, kinds of qualities and skills that are really important and necessary to a fruitful ministry by God's grace. Oh, that's beautiful. And uh, I was just looking on the map here, and you're quite close to Gary, Indiana, and you're located in Dyer, D-Y-E-R, Indiana, and it looks like uh, looks like a nice place. Yes. Uh, we sometimes jokingly say that we're in dire straits, but... <laughs> That's entirely tongue-in-cheek. Uh, not too many people know Dyer. Dyer is, is sort of a one among who knows how many clustered around the south end of the greater Chicago area suburbs. Yeah. It's an urbanized area. It's a metropolitan area. We aren't that far from the more rural uh, fields of Illinois and Indiana, but the cemetery itself is We're about 35 minutes from downtown Chicago. Um, we're straight south, not so much from Gary. It's probably we're, we're straight south from Munster to the north, and north of Munster is the city of Hammond, and to the okay. east of Hammond is Gary. But that's our area, or right on the state line. If you were at the seminary and had a stone, you could throw it into Illinois. <laughs> so if you're on a map and you see the two states at the bottom of, of the lake, just follow that um, state line straight south about uh, 10, 15 miles, and you'll be at Mid-America Reform Seminary. Oh, that's very helpful. Well, uh, today we've been talking with Dr. Cornelius Venema, and he is the uh, professor and president of Mid-America Reform Seminary. He's a URC minister. And uh, Dr. Venema, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you as well. I appreciate it. Dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.